Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals. And I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, the founder of the Chasing Amazing blog, author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, and I, too, own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, but the annuals don't count, Dan. Well, everybody, thanks for joining us for a special Amazing Friends episode of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. If you want to learn everything we know about Spidey, why not subscribe to our show starting back with the first season? You can enjoy our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your podcast player of choice. We'd love to have you along for our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future. Just head on over to AmazingSpiderTalk.com for all the details about where to subscribe. If you enjoy the show and want to help us continue while getting amazing bonus content and additional episodes that we never release publicly, go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. Dan, today we've got an interview that you conducted with Yuki Demers. Who is Yuki Demers, Dan? That's a good question, Mark, and a good question I'm sure many at home are also asking. You might not recognize the name Yuki Demers, but if you're a fan of modern Spider-Man, you're absolutely familiar with his work. Yuki was one of the lead concept art designers on last year's Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. His work was one of the leading voices on the visual design of the film. So take a look at any of his artwork at yukidemers.com and you'll immediately recognize the style behind the film. So I was really thrilled to talk to him about a film I love and the style of that film and how it was developed and, you know, Yuki's ultimate role in the film itself, from designing the environments the characters fought their way through to choosing the costumes in Peter's lair. He was the guy behind so much of that. I was really excited to talk to him. And I think if you're a fan of that movie, you're going to love this interview. That sounds really awesome, Dan. That sounds like a great get. So uh, why don't we get right to it and hear our interview with Yuki Demers. Well, now let's meet one of our amazing spider friends, the kind of guy I go to other friends who recommend. Find out about the things they created. You'll love them so much that you wish you dated. But you're just friends. They're an amazing friend. A friend, a friend, a friend. They're an amazing friend. I am joined by my friend here, Yuki Demers. Yuki, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Why are you on the show today? <laughs> and who are you? Uh, hi, I'm Yuki. I guess I'm on the show today because of a movie, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. That's a pretty good yeah. reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So essentially, I I guess you could call it concept art, even though that's not what my paycheck says. We refer to ourselves as visual development artists. I think it sounds a little fancier. We did talk about Seinfeld a little bit, and there is a Seinfeld joke about titles and men that, I, that I'm not going to <laughs> do here, but uh, it's, it's a fancier, a fancier version of saying I'm, I'm a, I was a concept artist on uh, Spider Verse. What, like, you know, I, I'm not going to ask you specifically for a title unless you really want to just drop it down there. But like, what was your position on Spider Man into the Spider Verse? Like, what, what oh, was in your purview? So my my official title was visual development artist. You can break visual development down into basically two sections: character design and everything else. I did a little tiny bit of character design, but mostly everything else. And when I say everything else, I literally mean everything else. In an animated film, everything is designed from the street surface to the sky. So an artist like myself, a visual de development artist, will have to do a design pass on that. I have a presentation that I've been doing at Sony for, you know, we get groups of, of uh, you know, kids come in, uh, they do a tour of Sony, and, and I give this spiel on what visual development is. And the first image that I show is... A, a painting texture of a New York street with par part of a sidewalk and part of like a sewer grate. And that is the first thing I show them because 
that's most of the job is figuring out what is the world going to look like, even something as mundane as a street texture. So like, you know, in something like Into the Spider-Verse, I can only imagine that like this is the kind of film that requires more of this visual de- development than like any oh, other film yeah, that of I've course. seen. Yeah. And, and that's uh, honestly, I think one of the great appeals of the film. Can, can you speak to like, like sure. how, how small does that go? Are, <laughs> yeah. you, are you designing like, like the way that things move and how that motion blur works? Is that outside of your realm? Or are you more in that's like a little outside physical my realm. objects? Yeah, that, it's more, uh, I guess the, my main responsibility in this film was mostly set design. So Miles dorm room, the spider hideout, which I, I designed with uh, one of our art directors, Patrick O'Keefe, Aaron's apartment, Aunt May's house, the 2099 lab, a bunch and a bunch of other things. But those were my big, the biggest things that I did. But you're exactly right. In this film, there was a lot more work because everything in animation had been moving towards more realistic textures, more realistic lighting. You know, you see if you've seen Moana, the the sand looks like sand, the water works like water, and it looks like water, and it reflects, it reflects light like water. Everything has been moving towards realism or, or a stylized version of realism in terms of lighting and texture. And this is the first time where a studio was, was completely behind this crazy idea of making a film at this scale look completely different and new. So it, it meant there was a lot more work. So uh, typically, if you're designing a table, uh, for instance, in, a, in an animated film, you might draw the table and roughly paint it and then cut out a, p- a picture of a wood texture from the Internet and tell Imageworks, this is what I want this table to be textured as, you know, this wood texture. And they would, you know, depending on how important that, that prop or that table is, they would either just use something they had laying around or, you know, do something, you know, more based on a real wood texture. Whereas in Spider-Verse, it's like, no, our wood texture is a bunch of kind of rat, like random color patterns that uh, it's hard to explain. Let me just do it. And that's what we ended up having to do is a lot of the textures were just done by hand. How much of that existed, like, before you were brought onto the project? I mean, like, where, when you came on, what did they tell you? They said, like... He, you know, we want to do some totally groundbreaking and we want it to, you know, like merge all these different visual styles together. Was that even in place when you were on board or are you a part of the team of people that was it, pushing that development? It was, I came on maybe a year after the, the development started and it was definitely at the forefront of everyone's thinking. This is going to be new. This is going to be different. It didn't really start to solidify until maybe two months after I got there. We had an artist that was working on the film originally uh, Alberto Mielgo, who had this amazing graphic take on, on, on painting and, and the, the way that he painted, which was very graphic and observed. And those were, those were what we kind of, that was the jumping off point for what we eventually ended up making the, with the final film. So no, we, we basically had to make it up as we went. <laughs> and how has that changed, you know, things at Sony? I, I, I imagine like, you know, doing something like this is a lot of extra work, but I imagine the animators and everybody on the team was so excited about this because like, honestly, between you and I, I think animation and the style of animation we've been seeing has grown really stale. Like I look at Pixar's new film and, and then it's really boring to me. Like I, I just, it, nothing about it excites me, yeah. but something like Spider-Verse so shook it up. It's like actually what animation is yeah. about as like, an art form. Let's do something different. That's why you use animation uh, and you don't use actors. There was this know? weird, I think, I, I mean, I, I can speak for myself and I, I'm pretty sure this, this applies to the rest of the team, but one of the major themes in the film was anyone can wear the mask. And it sounds really nerdy and lame, but I think we all really took that to heart. And when your boss or supervisor or director or producer comes up to you and says, hey, we're going to try this. It's never been done. I don't even know how anyone can do it, but can you try and, you know, they're like, you know, I'll see you in two days and we'll see what we get. And you go home with this, this, this sense of, well, one, they, they, they trust me, you know, to do right. something like this. And, and two, that it's like everyone had to step up and be that, be, be, be that hero, right? You had to be Spider-Man. We had to be every Spider-Man night. every day. And it was, yeah. it was crazy because it was across the board. Everyone was, was doing their best at everything, right? So everyone from... And I'm not even talking just artists. I mean, everyone in terms of support staff, the amount of hours, the amount of overtime we had to do to accomplish this, this, you know, this crazy thing, it, it was, it's staggering. And 
that's that, that's at least what I was thinking about whenever they would give me something that I was like, I've never done that before. I don't even know if it's possible, but uh, give it a shot. Do you feel a lingering effect from that now? Like, has it changed the studio <laughs> culture in any way? It, it definitely has. I mean, what we did, so our, our VFX soup, uh, visual effects supervisor, Danny Dimian, who's an awesome and a genius and has a, a team of geniuses, you know, around him. Most VFX soups, when you work on something and you pitch them something crazy like this, they'll say, it's too much money. We don't, we don't have a year to develop the tools we're going to need to just do one frame of this. So there's no point in even trying. Whereas uh, we would pitch something to Danny and he would, you know, s- stop for a second and say, huh, all right, we'll give it a shot. We'll try our best, you know. And, and I think that, you know, like I was saying earlier, the, the theme, anyone can wear the mask. Then he'd bring it to, you know, some genius in, in Imageworks and they would come up with some code or changing the code or changing the way that, that their, you know, their render system works or I don't crazy, you know, computer wizardry. Well, that's what I've heard. I've heard this new render system or this animation system they develop is so cutting edge that it kind of is remade how people animate things. You can do it faster and experiment more than ever before. (laughs) They literally invented tools for this film which, you know, now can be used for other things, which is really great. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the space race created tons of technology that we use today. This, this, this has the same effect, right? So there, there's films in, in production now, other films other than Spider-Verse, that are using technology that, we do, that Imageworks developed for Spider-Verse. You know, they won all, all sorts of awards for, for the visual, visual effects. And, yeah, and there was this, this thing that blows me away. When, whenever I do these spiels at Sony... Every once in a while, I get to see the, the VFX spiel by Danny. And I forgot who did it, but someone created this thing that we call the Magic Cube. And I believe it's, it's been online, but it's essentially this moving graphic cube that we use to fill in background detail. So if there's a car, cars in the distance or lights or advertisements changing, when you boil them down to graphic details, it's just different, different shades of different colors moving and Instead of trying to simulate that, we just embraced the graphicness of that idea because when you see it, 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 it doesn't it doesn't really change what you're experiencing, even though it's drastically simpler. Because it's so far back, we we just we accept it as as what it should be. In a lot of ways, the tools they developed to make this film look the way it does, it's like it was almost like dialing it back from the sophistication that we've gotten used to, right? So a ball or a sphere in an animated movie will have thousands of, of values, shades of light and dark of a certain color where, and, and the human eye can, can perceive more in real life, but you know, the computer's getting close to close, really close to what the human eye can see. Whereas in Spider-Verse, we'd paint it with maybe six or seven values. We'd say, well, you know, you have all these, you know, this, this nice gradient of values. Let's just do seven, like seven. And it's, it's funny. It's like, oh, how do you do that? And it's like, oh, you just turn the dial down. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the magic cube, it, it, it worked in a similar way where it was complicated to think of, but the actual render itself was less taxing on the computer. It's got to be thrilling for you as like our so-called concept artist, visual development. This, this movie has got to be like the closest to giving you some kind of authorial control over it, right? Because it is almost like a, a painting directly translated on screen. I mean, that line is normally a lot further separated, but here it's kind of blurred. Was that really exciting for you? Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was um, surreal at times because like you're saying, when we paint things normally, you'll see a version of that, but it's a more rendered, more cl- you know, closer to realism version of the thing that you painted. And even if it's loose and painterly, they get the idea, they'll make it and it, and it exists in a digital space which works on real... Or, or or digital version of physics and and one of the first sets that went into production was Miles dorm room and it was one of the it was that was the first set I designed I remember seeing the the final renders on that and I was confused because they love to do this thing where they would match the camera angle that I painted it at yeah and they would send us a screenshot of the actual render at the camera angle that I painted it at and I think they did it just to confuse us <laughs> because we would ask like, oh, wait, is this the painting? No, no, no. This isn't the painting. This is the, this is the set. And then the camera would start to move and blow all our minds. And, That's amazing. You know, well, someone would have to walk out of the room and, you know, bleeding out of their nose or something. I would love to, like, yeah, I would love to have seen your reaction to that. that that's thrilling. I mean, there's like, still times when I would look at uh, Uncle Aaron's set, you know, based on some of the paintings I did. And, and you still, it's like, I can't tell the difference really. I mean, there's slight differences, but 
at, at first glance, it's, it's, it's uncanny. That's so cool. Um, so, you know, you mentioned this team. Can you tell us more about the kind of Into the Spider-Verse team? Like, sure. who are you working with? And, like, how are these project, projects handled? Like, can you walk us through how the visuals of the film were developed? I mean, I could go through the whole team. Well, uh, don't go crazy. <laughs> but, like, I, 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 yeah, give me the broad strokes. Like, I, I want to know how something like this, like, comes into existence. Like, like what, what are the steps for, that you go through? So it all started with a story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... It, it sounds like a joke, but that's typically, that's where it starts, right? There's a script or some loose outline or some version of a script, I guess, because the script seems to always be changing, especially in animation. We love to just uh, screw ourselves over. Sure. Even looking at like the concept art book here, there's like a whole section on like Gonki's character yeah. and like how he was like an integral part of the yeah. story and he doesn't even get named in, Not until in the, the final end. version. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So totally. We start with the script. And then typically the production designer or one of your art directors will launch you on an assignment. It's really good to read the script because you have Imagine to understand. That. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you have to understand what you're designing. And when, you know, we're, I, I used to teach a cinematography class and my whole deal there was filmmakers are manipulators, right? We only have seconds to get the audience to look exactly where we want them to look exactly when we want them to look to see the one thing that they're going to, that we think they'll need to see to understand the next thing they're going to see or something they'll see later or something they saw before, right? So you start with the story, you get your, you know, your basic, oh, you know, Miles, uh, you know, Uncle Aaron's apartment. I'll give you the pitch they gave me. It's, it's a teenage boy's dream. It's the place where he can do all the, th- the horrible things that teenage boys love to do. You know, listen to loud music, play video games, throw knives, do karate, eat junk food, <laughs> lava lamps and that was the pitch that I, that I got but then also in context of the story you you start to see and this is uh, in the art book I wrote something it was like it was the one place Miles goes to escape responsibility and in the end the only place he can learn it yeah and, and I, I remember I said that to Peter Ramsey and he was just he, he was like oh yeah yeah dang yeah that's exactly it <laughs> but it was because I read the script and I had an understanding of what it needed to how it needed to function in the film that's what sets off the design, right? So let's talk about that, like, setting, right? Sure. So for example, you know, you're talking about the script and, and how you design that. I mean, that apartment is stuffed full of, like, little details. Oh, yeah. I mean, things that, like, you really only notice at the 10th time you watch it, like the picture frame with young Aaron and, yeah. and, and Jefferson, yeah. you know. And you're saying, like, you know, you want the audience to focus on things. And, like, part of your job is designing this, like, lived-in set where there's all these, like, little details and some Easter eggs thrown in here yeah. and there, you know, how do you ride the line between, let's say for this, just use this set, for example, how do you ride the line between too much stuff that becomes distracting and just enough to make it interesting? So like just for how example, you, in, in yeah. his apartment. Yeah. How do you do that? I, I didn't know there was a line. <laughs> so <laughs> I, you know what? I honestly didn't think about it. This was the first time where they just said, you can make it as complicated and complex as you want. Right. But but there still must be something yeah, that you use, I mean, techniques you yeah, use. Yeah, so the techniques that you things, use yeah. in in this case, right, because it was stuffed with tons and tons of, tons, you know, backstory stuff. Like, we had this whole backstory for that we created for Aaron that he, you know, he used to fight Muay Thai. So there's a lot of boxing and Muay Thai paraphernalia around, you know, there's posters, there's a photograph of, of Aaron in his heyday fighting Muay Thai. You tend to control what we're seeing with lighting. Right, so his set was lit in a very specific way. Sure, um, there was a painting that one of the artists uh, early early on did, Von Ling, of of Miles and Aaron playing video games on the couch on this red Chesterfield couch that we see. It was amazing because the painting was lit by the TV. Oh wow! And so that that kind of sparked this whole thing where maybe his apartment can be lit by the TV, or we can have almost like club lighting. And you even designed like a whole faux video game for that yeah. television, which we never see, right? We see Donald Glover. Uh, yes, like, exactly. Yeah. yeah. There, originally, instead of Miles, I think Miles is doodling in his sketchbook talking about meeting a girl. And that's when he gets the whole, hey, this is how you talk to a girl. You know, I can't have no nephew out there with no game or something like that. Originally, they were doing that. They had that conversation while playing a video game. And Aaron was going to be losing to Miles in a, in a Spider-Man fighting game so yeah it's it's crazy the amount of detail and the amount of work that was that went into just that one set so after you're done with it then what happens to it so after i'm done with it then my production designer justin thompson who's 
amazing. He, he, his philosophy on design and, and visual development artists is that it's our job to, to really own it and carry it through to the next step. So we would take it to a, a handoff meeting where we're handing it off to Danny and his team to actually create and make um, in a real 3D space. And so we'll, we'll, we'll have a kickoff meeting where all of the heads of the departments that, that need to be there that are going to be creating this space are there and I'm there and the production designer, art directors are there. And we, we kick them off on the space and answer any questions they might have. And then they take it and they model it and they get it as close to the painting as possible. And then they start lighting and texturing. And, and uh, that's where it gets a little hazy for me. <laughs> um, that's where it gets a lot more technical. So how was the vision for Spider-Verse described to you early on? I mean, you've said a little bit about this, but like, what did you understand of it? Like, and, and how were they communicating it to you before you started your work? I, I think it was Phil who said, you know, why do we, they, they, they pitched me on why they were making it. Right, because the first question anyone ever has when they're like, "Hey, we're making another Spider-Man," is, "We have so many, why even make it?" Right, or uh, what's going to set this one apart from all the others? I think this is what the eighth or seventh Spider-Man film, something like that. Yeah, yeah. So the the second, because I, I, it was so secret at Sony, and I was working on another film before it. We didn't even know what it was about. And then when I got on, they were like, "It's a Miles Morales story." That's when you know I went crazy. And that, that was that was the big draw, and that was kind of what what got everyone excited, right, was we're going to do the Spider-Man story, but it's not Peter Parker, it's Miles Morales. And we haven't really explored that world. We've explored it in comics, but we haven't explored it elsewhere, so. And it's animated. I mean, yeah. like, that's always been the big draw to me. It's like, you know, as much as I wanted to see Spider-Man in live action, like, seeing him animated, see those comic pages come to life, is a bigger draw for for someone who loves comics like I do. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, I got into this business because of the movie Incredibles. It's still my favorite movie. And I think it was because it blended my two loves, my love of superheroes and comics and animation. And when I found out that this thing was happening, it was, I had to be on it. Well, let's talk about that because, yeah. you know, like I, I know you, you know, decently well now, and I know that you're a big Spider-Man junkie. Yeah. I'm curious about your history with the character and like how you, like, were, were you brought onto this team with the knowledge that you were a Spider-Man junkie? Not originally. No, okay. I, I got on, on uh, art, artistic merits. <laughs> <laughs> I wish being a Spider-Man junkie was a merit to being hired yeah. for anything. Other, and then, then I would be much more employed. Yes. And then, then they find out, oh, this guy knows his, you know, he knows some stuff about Spider-Man. And, and my personal journey was Spider-Man was my favorite as a kid and my brother's favorite. And we love, you know, I think Spider-Man is a lot of people's favorite. He, he's always been there. But then I got, I got really into Captain America. You know, I have two Captain America shields at home and way too many Captain America figures and comics and all that stuff i think the the civil war event the first civil war in in marvel comics like really cemented my love for captain america and then the film started coming out and uh, brew baker's run yeah it is amazing and and that's kind of where i was living comics wise for a long time and then you know figuring you're finding out and then there's the when when spider-man spoiler if you haven't read civil war when spider-man leaves the stark side and goes to the captain america side that's when i kind of rediscovered him again Good run to rediscover. Oh yeah, too. like JMS's run is really yeah. incredible. If you forget about the last few yes. storylines, yeah. like you were able to write a lot of like kind of little details, Spider-Man wise, into the story you've described to me. It was is it safe to say that a lot of the kind of like Easter eggs and things are are things that fall under your purview? Yeah, I'd say yeah, yeah. There's but you know what everyone everyone put a lot. Yes, of and course. and even. People beyond the concept or visual development or writers, you know, people and image works put in their own, you know, Easter eggs. I think in the the Kingpin, the Kingpin fundraiser scene, you can see like the three visual effects like gurus that we, we actually made a version, a, a Spider-Verse version of each one of them oh, at the table fun. when Peter's freaking out about bread. The amount, I, don't, I couldn't even tell you how many Easter eggs are in this because, I mean, I could maybe guess how many I'm responsible for. Well, I hope <laughs> that you never do tell me. Yeah. You only set up a challenge for me to find them, yeah. which would not be healthy. Yeah. 
I want to start from like a, like a helicopter view, like start wide on your contributions to the movie and move our way in. Sure. Which is that like to say you designed this version of Manhattan, which not a lot of people can really say like, Oh yeah, that skyline was something that I created. Is that, is that accurate to, to say? Well, I design parts of it. Parts of it. There's okay, a so lot of people that design. Let's talk about your contributions to this Manhattan. My contributions to this Manhattan were mostly interiors. There was a few weeks where the entire team put everything on hold and designed buildings to populate the city. So that was fun. I spent a lot of time, a lot of time on Google Street View, you know, trying to get. Because I actually have never been to New York, so. Oh wow. <laughs> And it was getting kind of creepy because we would watch things and I had spent so much time on Google Street View that I could tell my wife what street it was on. <laughs> because it seems like in film and television, we only film in like three places in New York. Yeah. Right. Can you confirm whether or not the Daily Bugle is in this movie? I've always kept my eyes out for it, but I've never seen it. It is in a sense. There are articles yeah. from the Daily Bugle, but I don't think we have the actual building. Oh, uh, well, there's always somewhere to visit in the yeah. sequel, right? Yeah. You know, Manhattan is kind of like this, I don't know, it's like a techno wonder. How would you describe this version of Manhattan? It, it, again, goes back to story, right? Manhattan is a cold place to Miles. It's something that's not new. It's new and unfamiliar. And uh, we kind of went with that cold idea. And that's why Manhattan typically lives in the cold, the cooler side of the color wheel. You know, a lot of the, the cooler colors. And Miles house and any place he's comfortable in will live usually on the warmer side of the color wheel. And it's little things like that, that, that macro idea of good stuff is warm, bad stuff is cold, that you can then start designing your city, right? So when we see Manhattan, a lot of times it's in, it's in blue and cold and cool and neons that are, that are not natural and earth tones and warm. And that's where we can start with the, with the city, especially with Manhattan. Does that vary depending on whose perspective we're in? Because I, I think about like the original, like, you know, R.I. Peter, the Peter Parker who dies, like his version of Manhattan seems very warm, yeah. Times Square and, and bright colors of him swinging through the yeah. city. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you 100% if that was intentional, yeah. but I, I know the art director and, and he does think about that. So I'm sure it's intentional. And yeah, you're, yeah, you're right that it does change. And, and for most of the film, we're, we're seeing it through Miles' perspective, right? So. And it does seem to kind of open up at the end of the film when he kind of inherits the role of Spider-Man. He's a, the whole world seems brighter yeah. in, in a way. And that's definitely on purpose. Yeah. We already talked about Aaron's apartment. Yeah. But I want to talk about Miles' dorm room because <laughs> it's interesting because we, we see Miles' room in the Davis household or, yeah. or Morales household. Yeah, the Morales Davis. I'm not sure how that last name thing breaks down. I've, I've read and heard two reasons, right? Okay. Can't have a guy named Miles Davis of as course. a superhero. And you can't have a Jefferson Davis. Exactly. Oh, wait, we already did. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they didn't want to, you know, mess up twice. I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure why Bendis named that character after Civil War general. But... Yeah, but then there's some backstory which I'm sure you're familiar with, right? Whereas uh, maybe Jefferson had a troubled past right. and he wasn't around early in Miles' life, which, you know, then Miles takes his mother's last name and never bothers to change it. Sure. So, you know, the point being, like, in that house, it's Miles' space, but it's almost, it, it's couched within his parents' uh, gaze. You yes, know, like, yeah. you know, your your childhood room is a reflection of you and your parents' existence. Yeah. But the dorm room is very much Miles, and, and with a heavy presence of Genki's. Yeah. You know, the unnamed Genki's obsession with Spider-Man. Can you talk about that, that design for that room? First off, anytime I can sneak in a Spider-Mobile, I will. Yes, I, I think this is a good practice to have. <laughs> yeah, because I think the idea is ridiculous, yes. and I love it. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> before I start talking about it, but yeah, actually, the dorm, you're right. It's the first time Miles gets to do his own space away from his parents. And what's really interesting is because I designed Miles' dorm room first and then designed Aaron's second, his dorm room is it's like a kid's version of what an adult can do, like Aaron's apartment. It's so, like the proto spider cave. Yeah, anyway. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Miles has, you know, Aaron has these gigantic larger than life speakers. He's got video games. He's got, you know, cool stuff everywhere. And, and Miles has his version of that, you know. So instead of giant Marty McFly, you know, 10 foot high speakers, he has his little laptop speakers. And 
Aaron has a, like a wonderful jazz album collection in his, his apartment. And Miles has, you know, his, his more, you know, we don't really see his collection, but we see, obviously he's a Chance the Rapper fan and all this stuff. So it's, he's, he's a younger mirror of, of who he wants to be when he really looks up to Aaron. And that's, that space is how we tell the audience as fast as possible. Miles, you know, if, in case you didn't realize Miles really looks up to this guy. And how does um, something like the plot of the story like influence your design of that space? Because ultimately, you have to have like what is it? It's like five or six spider characters clamoring around on the yeah. ceiling and things like that. Does that alter how you design a space like that? Or it, it definitely do you find does. A way to make it work. It definitely does. Sometimes it's it's like like you're saying. Sometimes you you design it and then you make it work because they just decide to do something later. And in the the fitting in the five spider people in there that's kind of just a happy accident, right? It, it's just funnier that way when it's a tighter space. Uh, All the comics that uh, Genki is reading, like, do you have any influence over the covers that, you know, I was so surprised to see real Spider-Man comics working yeah. their way in here. I think I picked a few, and then I think I think Marvel actually picked a few for us. Oh, that's cool. Some of what they consider the most, you know, influential Sure, books. some of them were immediately yeah. recognizable. Yeah, exactly. Like, what, uh, uh, Spider-Man No More... Yeah, is there, issue fifty is yeah. I think like prominently shown in a yeah. lot of times. There's other other cases in where where we couldn't put the the comic cover itself, but the idea behind the cover. Uh, so in Aunt May's house, there's a wedding photograph, Peter and, and and MJ, and I just used the the composition from I forgot what issue it was, but yeah, the, the uh, marriage Amazing issue. Spider-Man Annual Number Twenty One. Yeah, and it's a it's an iconic image, right? And so we use that, and we'll we'll try to sneak in as many homages or Easter eggs to to the source material as possible. This is probably completely outside of your choice, but there's another famous marriage related to the the May Parker household in the comics, and that is May marrying uh, Doctor Octopus. <laughs> and there's been a lot of fan talking about like May being more than friends with Liv. Is there any reality to that, or is that to be seen in a later date? That's yeah, that's to be seen. I think I can. Because uh... she doesn't necessarily die. We don't see a body. Yeah, Doctor Octopus. That's a good question. She gets hit by a you know a van or, yeah. or a, a train or whatever. People have survived worse things in the world of Spider Man. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Does May refer to her as Liv or Olivia? I don't know. I think she refers to her as Liv in in the movie. Just yeah, to kind of that's like. A good... My read was always she's just like, oh, like I hate people that like have nicknames like this. But like there is a certain implied history between Otto and and May. Oh, yeah. It's a it's a great device too that the the live Olivia thing. Right. So let's move on to the spider cave. Oh, probably the best like location in the movie that you had a large hand to play in, in the design of this. We called it the spider hideout. Got it. Okay. You know, it's cooler than a bat cave, I think. I think you might be right. But it doesn't it, have a giant unit of money. Which yeah, yeah. We tried to sneak that. in a giant quarter just to one up or 24 up or Batman. Or a T-Rex. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the spider hideout, it was essentially, I mean, the way that that served the story was it was to tell the audience that this Earth's, you know, Miles, Miles Earth's Spider-Man or Peter Parker had devoted his life completely to being a superhero, to being Spider-Man. And in order to support this lifestyle, he's, you know, monetized on his fame as a superhero. And he's, you know, he's got a cereal brand, he's got sneakers, he's got his own energy drink. If there was a Spider-Man movie, like, you know, Tom Cruise or The Rock would play him. He That's how he's funded this this place, right? So he has not unlimited resources, but he's got a pretty big bank account. That's really interesting that you put it that way because I, my read was always that like he was a little full of himself. Well, that's the surface read, that, and it's exactly what we intended, right? Right, it's, like a Bruce Wayne. It's you see, like ah, oh, what an like egomaniac. He's got all this merchandise of himself all over his office, and then you realize, that, and then you realize because we always referred to this guy's perfect Peter, yeah, or R.I. Peter, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you realize that beneath the surface, the shallow, the shallowness of of his commercialism is a guy who's devoted his life entirely to fighting crime. That's great. What would that look like? And that's kind of how the design process started. And so this one, I did a pass, a couple passes on the spider hideout that they wanted full camp, you know, full spider knowledge. How do we just do this over the top? Doors shaped like spiders Exactly. Things, yeah, I, I must have, I think I posted some early versions, right? Where, yeah, the doors have the spider logo. Everything has a spider logo on it. Um, it's ridiculous. And there were some, you know, some elements that, that we stuck with, 
But in the end, our art director took another pass, which I think it wasn't feeling sophisticated enough. So our art director, uh, one of our art directors, Patrick O'Keefe, did a design pass on the space itself. And he gave it a modern architecture kind of makeover. Kind of floating in space. Yeah, this, he had this great great idea of, we, we had like a, a couple day kind of sketch brainstorm period where we were just, how do we incorporate more ideas of the web and how Spider-Man doesn't need, he can move differently. So he, he doesn't need to have stairs. He doesn't need traditional office space layouts. I love how so many of the platforms in there seem to be, and I can't even begin to imagine how this underground cavern of space even exists. Yeah. I love that so many of the platforms are being held aloft by what seemed to be like metallic webbing. Yeah. That, that's holding it up. It's, well, it's such a so then Patrick came detail, up with yeah. this amazing kind of architectural modern web strut language with as many or as little platforms as we needed. So then we saw that, everyone loved it, it was great, but then he said, oh, we need some of that cheesiness back, some of the camp, right? And so then they're like, all right, Patrick, you move on to something else. Yuki, go nuts. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what are your, some of your favorite like, items in this space? Because it is, ch- like you said, chock full of like campy fun. I just think it's hilarious that he drinks out of a mug of his face. <laughs> I, I love that he has a guitar. I, I snuck in. It's super small, but he has a photo of himself and Obama, you know, walking the White House grounds. He's got those series of, like, weights that seem to be handcrafted just for him. Oh, that was very... I was very specific that it had to be... I, canonically, he has a, a weight that he can bench press, right? That's kind of like amongst nerds, we talk about, you know, strength levels in comic books, and right. it's always measured in the tons, Right, so he's I I forget where he falls, but it's different everywhere you look. But I think he can bench, he can press. They never say bench press. He can bench press a set. I think it was like ten Two tons or something like that. I thought it was closer to ten. Maybe it's ten. So he's he's got super strength, but he's not Hulk strong. Yeah. Which Hulk is like a hundred tons plus hundred to unlimited, right? Sure. Depending on how mad he is. I want to ask you about a specific thing on the wall. There's this great moment where he's got this web mapped out of all the villains and how they're connected to each other. Yeah, the murder web. The murder web. And, you know, there's a number of villains that don't actually make their, like, appearance in the movie on the web. I'm trying to remember if Shocker made the final cut. He never... Yeah, I don't know if he did. The one that really stood out to me was the Rose, who is Richard Fisk. And, you know, in the story of the movie... Richard Fisk and his mother get killed in a yeah, in a and car. that's part of the 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 reason Kingpin is doing what he's doing, right? Right. So I mean, is that something like I'm not even speaking about like Spider Verse Two, which yeah. like if we get into that, great, I'll be happy to <laughs> enjoy the the fun ride of the of the, seeing the Rose in a movie, which yeah. is a character I love and never thought would be in a movie. Was that something that like you snuck in there and then like was put in the movie with, like not? thinking of the ramifications of what that potentially means? I mean, it definitely came up, the ramifications of what that could mean. And I think it's fun, one, to put things in there that you may pursue later, or they could mean something completely different later. So it's, or or they just could be meaningless. But it's always fun to have these points that you can web off from. Yeah. You know, excuse the pun. I'll excuse it. I have have a Spider-Man podcast. (laughs) Yeah. I think in in the Rose's case, it's, it's too early to tell. Yeah, no, it's just well, too early. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's fun to put, and then stuff like that where I just put it in there and, and people point out, oh, that's, you know, Richard Fisk and the whole thing is about that kind of, well, you know, we don't know how deep into alternate realities this version of Spider-Man has gotten into. We don't know if anyone, any one of those photos on the web is another realities Richard sure, Fisk. Sure, it could be, it could be anybody, right? Like the Prowler isn't Hobie Brown. Exactly. Yeah. I'm curious how much research goes into this on your part in regards to things like, you know, there's the spider O's and there was really a Spider-Man serial yeah. once and the design does not seem similar, but, but then there are toys featured in this that are real life things <laughs> that, that, you know, that have popped up and that are a real nerd. I think the research part is my favorite. Yeah, I'm sure. Right. A lot of the toys that are in the film are toys that I own. There was an earlier version of Miles' dorm room where you could see Genki's action figure collection. It's a blend of my Spidey collection and my brother's Spidey collection put together. So the research part is fun on that. The the, the highlight of the room, I think, is the spider costumes or the spider suits. Oh, that yeah. are uh, The design of it is great. 
Like, I've never seen them presented in such wonderful fashion because I don't think Spider-Man's ever had a display case. But you really got to kind of, like, run the whole span here of suits. You know, it took me a couple watches to, like, notice that some of them were in there. I mean, there's, like, the Secret War suit. There's, like, the stealth suit in green mode. Like, some of them barely show up. And in your in your artwork, there's even more that aren't included. So... Let's just start there. Yeah. Are there some that you wanted to include but you couldn't? Like, I can't help but notice in your <laughs> artwork, there's the bombastic bag man. Uh, yeah. Who sadly is not in we, the We, for some reason, couldn't do that one. Because uh, it's Fantastic Four related? Yeah, I think yeah. maybe that's why. But it, there is a, there's two versions of that suit, or if you want to call it a suit. The one with the Fantastic Four suit and the bag. Mm-hmm. And then there's the, the shirtless orange pants bag man. And that's the the version I went for, and the, and and all of this stuff is always you know back and forth with legal. So there was probably five or six suits that I wanted to put in that I had to swap out for something else. I'm sure you can't do the, like say the you know the what if number one, what if Spider Man joined the Fantastic Four yeah. suit, right? Yeah, it's got the five the Future Foundations one. Spider. Have you seen that one? Yeah, that's the yeah. black and white one. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to put that one in, but of course, I mean some of these are are not even worth pursuing because you already know where it's going to go. I thought we could get away with the bomb, bombastic uh, bagman, but uh, you know what? We might now, since the first one was okay, some people saw it, we might be able to do that, I think. But there's some like cool ones like the Spidey suit, which is like from What If, the one when he's got the cape and, and things like that. Are there favorites of yours that yeah, you so, managed to squeeze in? So going back to, like, I, know if I, I don't know if I really ever answered your question. So sometimes when you're designing a set, certain things need to be there. So you'll have a list of things like, oh, in this set, they're going to have there. We have a joke about a cape. So there has to be a suit with a cape on it. Right. So I knew that. Then I started thinking, why would he have a suit with a cape on it in his hideout? I was like, well, maybe if he collected all his suits over the years, we could sneak in a suit with a cape and it wouldn't seem as, you know, weird. (laughs) (laughs) So that's when the whole idea of having like a hall of armor, you know, you know, all the Iron Man in his hideout. And then that's what opened up the, the whole, you know, the fun, fun, the fun, the fun part of picking. I'm sure they were the very suits. excited by this idea because oh, it, it was means amazing. that they can sell a million toys. Yeah. And, various and also I was super excited. I, I put in, in every version, the, the PS4 Spidey suit. And I was super excited that we were able to do that. Yeah. And that is cool. And again, it's like, you know, the second one's coming out. We, we don't know, you know, we don't, we don't know what, what the second one brings. And, and I love how these suits like, you know, like the the photo of the rose can be a starting point for something. Sure. I mean, you've got like the, the you know, the first two versions of the, the MK suits, you know, you've got the Secret Wars suit, the Electroproof suit. There was one that took me ages to <laughs> discover where it was from. And to the point that I was like, this can't even be intentional. Like... I I wonder if it's the one, if you know the one I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I do. It's Wait, the all red suit. Yes. I finally read that comic and it was after a conversation with you because I just saw photos of it online and I wasn't even, I couldn't even find where it was in comics. How did you find photos of it online? I mean, like, I, I, I'm no joke. I put my whole team of people to there, work on this. Okay. There is a Mondo poster of all the spider suits through the years. I own that exact poster. Yes. And there's one that just says the spider. Yeah. And it's all red. And I didn't know, and you pointed this out to me, that it's a symbiote suit. But then I rationalized it in my mind. The way that I rationalized it being there and not being moving and alive was, you know, after he got, after Peter got the symbiote and he discovered how cool it was and people realized how badass he was and then he lost it, he started wearing the black suit which was supposed to look like the symbiote suit, right? So that was my yeah. reasoning, right? It's like, oh, I mean, even though that's a, an alt-world alt version that's kind of evil, oh, or is it like, I kind of forgot the backstory on it, but it's 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 like a, if Spider-Man were Carnage kind of thing. Yeah, right? and he's like a he's like mentally ill and, and yeah. crazy, and he dies. It's, yeah. it's from Exiles number 12. <laughs> yes, that's exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I didn't know that. Uh, the funny thing is because, when I saw that, I, the only reason I recognized it is because of that Mondo poster because I own it. And yeah. I thought, you know, the guy who designed this before I even met you, I said he must have just looked at the Mondo poster and pulled it because no one would remember this well, exile. We got comic. to a point where I think they cut Bombastic and it's like, oh, we need, we need a suit. And I was like, I was running out of suits. Right. Right. And, and 
different suits have different tie-ins with different heroes in the Marvel universe, which we we got to stay away from. Right, right? You so do Hulk, you, you start running that. out of suits, and it's like, oh, there's an all red one, and it's like that'll be pretty easy to do. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just put that one in there. Well, there you go. Yeah. It's, it's funny because like I reverse engineered it. Yeah. back through the same thing. Yeah, it's funny. You you were the first person who actually knew where it was, where it was from. Well, I didn't even know where it was from because like, like I, I again, my reference for it was the Mondo poster. Well, well I think, yeah, we, we met it at an art show and I think you, maybe you talked to me about it. I know I definitely did. Yeah. It was after I had already discovered it. Oh, okay. It. Okay. Like it, it perplexed me for weeks. Like where, where is this? Hey, it perplexed, it perplexed me for years. So there you go. <laughs> or well, maybe that, a year. That's very cool. I mean, are there costumes that you're like looking specifically for, like to to include in the next one? You want to work your way through the NK series? <sighs> that would be awesome. I mean, there's certain costumes that I put in there, like the electroproof suit, because I thought that one was really '90s. Yeah. And a lot of us kind of grew up on '90s cartoon Spider-Man, and the electroproof uh, it serves a dual purpose, right? It shows, oh, this guy fought Electro. <laughs> you know, he's not only has he fought him, but he's you know. He's excelled at fighting him because right. he's made a whole suit to nullify his power set. I don't have another place to ask you about this, so I'm just going to get right <laughs> to it. In Miles's room in the Davis Morales household, it, as he flips through the pages on, on his artwork, there's a giant robot that in my write-up for The Hollywood Reporter I said was Leo Pardon, and I know that you have some kind of legalese you have to say about it, but... Talk to us about Leopardon. So it's it's we can call it we can call it not Leopardon. Okay, that's fine with me. Because <laughs> it's definitely specifically not Leopardon, but it is a robot and it could be from Japan. Okay, that's fair. I don't know. It was just a fun. I mean, that's one of my favorite versions of Spider-Man because it kind of it's the Power Ranger Spider-Man, right? Yeah. Like I said, we grew, we grew up in the '90s. Power you can't escape Power Rangers, and putting those two together is 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 platinum. It's better than gold. So there was like a tease, if the you know from the directors that if the film reached two hundred million dollars in the box office, that you know Leo Pardon might make an appearance, and nobody really referenced that Leo Pardon or sorry, not Leo Pardon yeah. <laughs> was in the film. Is there a chance that not Leo Pardon might might appear? I think there's a good chance that Leo Pardon, not not Leo Pardon, okay, will appear. The the inverse negative <laughs> yeah. of Miles drawing. Yeah. Think back to your uh, order of operations or, uh, you know, two negatives. What? That's a positive, right? Yeah, I think so. Double I negative. Think so. I think in so. In grammar and in math. So um, a little bit less excitingly, but I'm sure still a ton of work for you, was Aunt May's home. You know, you, you've talked about it a little bit, but like it is a really distinct style for this movie. It, it's almost San Francisco-y in, in, its, in its wholesomeness and, and cleanliness. Can you, can you talk about designing that home? Yeah, so that home in particular is really you know every every other space when you're putting in easter eggs and you're doing all this stuff it's it's the nerd side of me that that's filling this space with stuff that i just want to see this is the first time i mean and i remember i think i did the spider hideout right before this set and it was like the coolest thing ever and then oh yeah can you do this uh she's not a grandma but it's basically a grandma's house right so to me to really embrace that that assignment well, I said, well, what is this place going to look like? And it's like, what does is, what is being a grandma mean to me? I know she's not a grandma, but she's of the grandma age. So what does that mean to me? What does that look like? And I started with, it, it, it looks like what I think a grandma's house should smell like. <laughs> right? So uh, it should smell like fresh baked cookies. It should smell like overused cleaning products. It should smell like there's one room you can't go in. That's the nice room, the clean room. And so from that, I pulled from my own, you know, grandmother's house and she, you know, she lives on the East coast. She's in Massachusetts and she, she was really into toll painting and all that stuff. So a lot of the kitchen uh, area is, is based heavily on my, my, my own grandmother's house. Oh, wow. And the, the living room set is basically if you, if my mother-in-law's house and my mother-in-law's mother's house became one. So what's really, what's really cool is, the, so this is my wife's grandma, the mother-in-law's mother. She actually grew up in Queens. Oh, wow. And so her style and her natural tendencies lend itself to, you know, a Queens, a Queens nice living room, right? I mean, it does remind, I lived in Forest Hills myself. You know, there is a certain familiarity Oh, there. definitely. And when I showed her the, the paintings I'd done, she was like, wow, this is like, this is like my house in Queens. 
I find it so funny because I look at the Aunt May scenario with her kind of nephew's shed in the backyard that's full of Spider-Man paraphernalia. I feel like it's like increasingly representing my relationship with my wife. Yeah. It's like, there's the place we spend time with the family, and then there's the cave. Yeah. You know, in the Your back nerd the area. Thing. Yeah. Far away from everyone that's locked at all times. It's got even a spider lock uh, on it. Yeah. You know? So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that it's definitely that's representative of my life as well. Yeah, so that so that space, if we're talking Easter eggs, is filled with just like personal Easter eggs, right? Can you get into that? Sure. Like, yeah. yeah. So I, my my grandmother, she painted these awesome toll, like wooden cut cats. So on, on on above all the door frames, I don't know if it ever made it into the film, but I put these like wooden toll painting cats. Oh wow! And you know a lot of her stuff. And then uh, I snuck in a photo of my daughter. It's actually one of the first ones you see in the film. When they open the door, it's on that weird side table thing near the front door. It's of my daughter when she was two picking strawberries. And, you know, all sorts of things like my brother-in-law's Boy Scout picture. I altered it to look like young Peter Parker as a Boy Scout. <laughs> you know, my father-in-law has as a flag that you get, you know, if you're, if a loved one served in the military, they get a flag, right? Which is representative supposed to be representative of uncle ben so there's all these little details oh that's funny i i, I always thought it was for uh peter like for his service to the city of new york but uncle is in this uncle ben yes was a, uncle ben was in the army i believe got it of course when a person when a service member dies regardless of how long they've been out of the sure. service they can they're they're entitled to this this flag and this recognition of their service right wow so it came from a place that was real in my life but also applies i think really well to to peter's life right very cool. Yeah, I love seeing things. Yeah, like so that, even if I'm not going to pick up on there's that, the yeah. uh, there's the nerd stuff and then the emotional nerd stuff. Right? So this is like a little bomb for you, like you know, yeah, of, it was of Yuki. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, it, I'm, I'm all over it, or at least my family's all over it. Emotionally, you know, I think when the movie came out, it packed this punch was something that you created. The Stan Lee quote image that you know opened up the the film. Like it was when I saw it, like about a month early. That must have just been added because Stan had died like two weeks prior. Yeah. And I couldn't believe that it was kind of marshaled that quickly to be added to the film. Can it was, you speak about that process? Sure. Yeah, it was the day after he had passed where we decided that we needed to do something. And I was also just in my own office doing something, some personal work to commemorate his contribution and, and his his life. And I had to stop doing that because they asked if I could do this this small tribute piece to put, I think it was at the end of the film, yeah. um, to put in the film, you know, to commemorate him and his, his contribution to not just comics, but to culture in general, right? And the way that we, the way that he kind of shifted how we think about heroes, right? Stan, to me, as a creator and a writer, what made his work interesting is it was about the person first. And it was and then, and it was about the person and then dealing with being a superhero, right? Whereas when you look at a lot of the DC stuff, it's more about... First, we know what their we, we learn what their power is, and then we see how that affects them. Maybe, sometimes, right? I think the most interesting character DC wise is, is Batman because we get so much of what what it's doing to him as a person, and then also you know all of his inclusiveness and awesomeness. Where that quote that's associated with it? Do you know where that was pulled from? I think the producers and directors just had a meeting and they just decided that was that was the one. Do you, do you know what's originating source? I, you know what? I don't know where it came from. I know it's one of his most famous quotes, though. Okay. I cried drawing it. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I cried in the theater watching it. Was, it. Yeah. And, and, and not only that, I, the fact that he passed, and this was, I, it's not the last cameo that he did. I think the last cameo he did was in Captain Marvel. Yes. But it was, it was the last Spider-Man cameo. I think it's his most meaningful cameo too. Oh. I mean, it it sums up his ethos kind of totally, really, totally well. You know, yeah. Even his approach to writing Spider-Man, where he like kind of steps on them while he's crossing the street. Yeah, it's like yeah, that's how you write a character like Spider-Man is you just repeatedly beat them up yes. over and over and over yeah. again. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, his little you know cameo is is in my opinion the best cameo he's ever done yeah i mean it, it was they, very meaningful yeah they typically man. use them to you know have like a little throwaway joke or you know oh it's funny you know but I, this is the first time where it it really like and, it, and you can also tell it impacted the, the characters did that scene with stan lee i mean I don't know how involved you were in that but like did it take on meaning later on or was it altered to kind of like 
acknowledge Stan Lee's death. I mean, there's something there's something about it that seems very final, and maybe maybe it's the, me bringing that to it. Like, but like, it, it almost seems like aware of his future in, in some way. It's actually it wasn't intent. We didn't, you know, we didn't know. Yeah. And of course, with animation, everything is recorded way earlier. Yeah. So it just happened to be. I think. I think the intention was for it to be powerful because it needed to be powerful for Miles. And um, it just so happened that, you know, he passed after. Yeah, pretty wild. Yeah. It also, at the end of the movie is this amazing Spider-Man 2099 <laughs> sequence that I think a lot of, really caught a lot of people off guard, not just for the... You know, Myself the, included. The, 60, yeah. the 60s cartoon. So to talk about that, what what you mean by it catching you off guard? Because uh, you've told me this story. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so towards the end of, of production there, I, I, there was so much work to do that, and I have a, about an hour commute that our art production manager just asked me one day, he said, hey, uh, this is Kyle Rapone, shout out to Kyle. He said, how long does it take you to get here? I said, it was about an hour both ways, you know, or an hour each way. And he said, uh, how about you just work instead from home and just work as much as you can? Because <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of stuff to do. And uh, so it was during my working from, almost working from home exclusively time that I just got a, and we use Gchat. I got a Gchat from our production designer, Justin Thompson. And he said, hey, uh, do you want to design the 2099 suit? And I said, uh, yeah, of course I do. And he said, okay, uh, well, you have till the end of the day. <laughs> and I think it was already like two o'clock or something. I had to the end of the day to do, you know, just a bunch of iterations on what the suit could look like. And then we picked one pretty quickly because I think Phil kind of came up with this idea last minute. You know, but if it's good, you do it, right? So we had a couple of days to do that, to do the suit, nail down the suit. And then they're like, all right, where is he going to be? What, what, is the, what is the tech going to look like, right? So the, we had, a, I think we did it all in about a week, which is crazy fast. He's supposed to have kind of a quasi-military tech slash future. It's kind of the void of space, yeah. too. So it's very kind of like low. So we don't really know where that. he is yet, yeah. right? We know he has access to a... The first dimensional He's an teleporter, right? Or whatever. Yeah, I don't know if we've ever confirmed where that is. <laughs> but he's got his, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Layla, Lila, yeah. his counterpart. And she's very different in design from Definitely. how she is in the comics. Can you speak to designing? Did you design that character? I think that design was done by Justin. I just designed the the effect, oh, like what she looks like. Yeah. yeah. And that was done because of the, the limited amount of time. I think we took... Well, we... I think, yeah, Justin did a quick design and then got it right into modeling. Typically, we do a lot of drawings and a lot of discussions and all this stuff, but we knew that we wanted to change. It's it's kind of, I feel like she was modeled after Marilyn Monroe in the, yeah. in the comics, right? And we kind of wanted to update that. It is weird that like a guy has like a personal kind of like sexy hologram. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a bit too chauvinistic, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we were, we were, you know, we wanted to give that an update. And also it's like, you know, we had we had some actors in mind and actresses, right? So Yeah, well, I mean, they couldn't have chosen a better actor to play Miguel O'Hara oh, than yeah. he did. I mean it, his timing comedically is amazing. Oh yeah. Well, I mean and it's like, boy, like it doesn't take like a jump to go, that's who should play him in, in live action, you know? Yeah, I mean I'm still amazed at the cast they were able to get. Like Mahershala Ali, how did he say yes to this? I don't want to have you dish on the Sony stuff because you're employed by them, but like it is baffling to me. And I'll just say personally that like we're going to, we hear all these reports about crazy things that you think will never happen, like an Aunt May movie, but like <laughs> where's the 2099 movie? Who yeah. wouldn't want to see a Spider Man Blade Runner oh, uh, yeah. movie? It seems like a no brainer. Yeah. I'm not going to get into that. Well, Blade Runner is a, spy, is a Sony film, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. So like just lean into it, yeah. you know? Blade Runner 2049. I'm going to say better than the original Blade Runner. Oh, wow. That's oh, a fight. Oh, yeah. Those are fighting words. I there. know they are. I know they are. I feel it in my heart. <laughs> there are people I'm not going to mention on the team when that, because that film came out during the production of that movie of Spider-Verse. Yeah. There were definitely two camps. There's the, there's your camp. It's better than the first. And then there was the, the opposite and it got pretty heated. Yeah. <laughs> I put me, so, I, I love Blade Runner, but put me solidly in 2049's team. Yeah. You know, to bring this to a close, Yuki, thank you for being so generous with your time. I ask everybody who comes on my show that's worked on the character of Spider-Man uh, this question, and I think your contributions to the Spider-Man mythos, you know, are are equally great as many of the other people we've had on the show. I mean, these movies are seen by 
millions of people around the world and these worlds become real because of the work people like you do. So what does it mean to you personally that you got to contribute to the legacy of Spider-Man to work on a character like Spider-Man? It means a lot, to put it bluntly and short. One of the first books that I got as a kid, my dad got me How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way. Oh, yeah, a classic. I drew Spider-Man the most, for sure. And to work on something that, that you love and, and respect, is, is, it's hard to match. Then being able to contribute to that long legacy of amazingness is, you know, even in my small way, is, it's, it's, I can't, it's hard to put into words. <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. Well, uh, Yuki, I should you... say amazing, right? <laughs> Spectacular. Yeah. What fan are you? Yeah. 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 He, to his credit, he's wearing an amazing yeah. Spider-Man t-shirt yeah. right now. Can uh, I say it's, um, it's ultimate? No, no, that doesn't work. <laughs> uh, it, it is the ultimate assignment. Yes. It's the ultimate, it's the ultimate job. Yeah. yeah. So Yuki, if people wanted to keep up with you moving forward, where, uh, you know, online or wherever, how can people kind of like enjoy your work and, 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 and keep up with you? Yeah, I tend to own, I, I need to do it more, but I, I tend to really, I finally updated my website. I put all my Spider-Verse work on my website nine, nice. nine months after the film came out. But uh, I, Instagram is where you'd go. So uh, you can find me, I think if you type in just Yuki Demers or Ninja Yuki, which is my Instagram handle that I will never change because it's cool. Yeah. Uh, it's not that cool. It's really nerdy. But uh, yeah, that's where you can find me. And what about this book over here? <laughs> The Spider-Verse book. Yeah, you should get that. I think there's a second printing now because the first, the first printing sold out really fast. Yeah, the second printing has the Green Goblin on the cover. Yeah, which yeah. is really cool. It is cool. It's like oh, tempting me to buy a second one. Yeah, I have. Uh, I think I had six books at one time I, and I gave them all out. Yeah, and your, your work is peppered throughout really nicely. But go check out his website, everybody, because there's stuff that's not in the book. Yeah, that's on there. Like I love some of your animations of Spider-Man getting punched. Oh yeah, those are fun. Goblin. Yeah, yeah, we call those burst cards. Oh, they have to do a lot of burst cards in those home days. (laughs) Well, thanks again, Yugi. It was a blast having you on. Yeah, anytime. Well, thanks again to Yuki for agreeing to talk to me about his work on Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Please go check out his website, yukidammers.com. We put a link in the show notes. And go on you know, Instagram, Twitter, whatever, and let him know how much you enjoyed his work. I hope we can get him back on again for Spider-Verse 2, or whatever that movie ends up being called. Into the spice spider verser, right? Or no? I, <laughs> uh, D- <laughs> what is it? D- I- into harder? Oh my god! All right, enough. Uh, so Dan, besides awful movie titles, uh, what's coming down uh, the pike for our show next? What, what what's what's going to be episode eleven of our season three coverage? Well, Mark, we've been talking about his work all season in some form or another. So we thought it would be prudent to finally talk about the work of Ross Andrew, the kind of much overlooked, uh, undersung work of Ross Andrew, who we've been seeing the praises of, I think, on the show. But it's time for us to sing in a more concerted effort. That sounds awesome. Also, for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week for a special review of Amazing Spider-Man number 33. But if you like Venom like us, then come for Dan's coverage of the Absolute Carnage event. There's no better place to join on the Patreon bandwagon than to join us for our exciting coverage of the all-new Spider-Man comics. Remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, B-book reviews, extended interviews, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commissioned artwork this season from Barry Kitson. Also, be sure to check out our sister show, The Untold Talks of Spider-Man, who every week are diving into the history of the character and finding some overlooked classics for you to check out and read on wherever you find them to read. Go check out Untold Talks of Spider-Man. Plus, we've also got the amazing Spider-Slack community for you to join. Just check out this episode's description for a link to join our Spider-Man talking community. And just to brag about that community a little bit, I think that community has kind of cracked uh, the identity of kindred and Mark, you and I even recorded a special Patreon episode exactly about that. So, uh, if you're not in that community, you need to go join that community cause it's special and you need to get on our Patreon so you can hear Mark and I talk about it. 
Uh, also, a special thank you to Rick Coast, our amazing, spectacular, adjectiveless web of editor who cut together this very episode. Rick, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and where we can find your work? Thanks, Dan. This is Rick, and you can find links to my work at rickcoast.com and my work in audio fiction at my other site, modernaudiodrama.com. There you will find the audio series The Behemoth, as well as the superhero audio drama Inhale. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Rick Coast, and uh, Coast is C-O-S-T-E. Back to you. Awesome. Thanks again, Rick. Mark, what about you? Where can we find you on this week? Oh, well, of course, you can find me on Twitter at ChasingASMblog, and you could always find my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Dan, what about you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at SupSpiderTalk, and by the time you hear this, I've probably had three more theories about Kindred that I've posted long threads about. So go check out, follow me on Twitter, and you can get all of your Kindred Spider-Man stuff. I think I'm talking about Kindred more than I am about Spider-Man these days. That's a state of things, Mark, right? It's the amazing Kindred talk. <laughs> yes, and so until we change our podcast motto to reflect Kindred, our ethos remains the same. Mark, what is that ethos? You mean it's not ring around the rosy, Dan? No, it's not. Not, not yet it isn't. Okay, well, I guess then it's the other one, which is with great podcasts must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Is this where we start singing now? Ring around the rosy. <laughs>